Okay, well, let's turn back to Lamentations. Okay. So we're rocking along here. We're trying to get our arms around this small but uh, sort of feature-packed book. It's a, not a book you might gravitate toward in the Bible because it's all about grief and lament and sorrow, as the name implies. And yet, as we're seeing, uh, this is something of a necessity for all of us because we're going to have times in life when hard things happen and the right response, the godly response, is to grieve and uh, to lament in that way. So uh, someone bring me up to speed. You know, if, if uh, visitors were walking in today and they've never heard about Lamentations, they have no idea about the book, give me your short couple of second flyover. What have we learned thus far? What, what, what is this book about? Yes, it's a, it's a funeral lament, a funeral dirge for the nation of Judah, specifically for the city of Jerusalem. That's right. Okay. And, and why are we lamenting? What happened? Yeah, invasion, devastation, destruction, taking people away. And, and why would God allow that for his people? It's judgment for sin, right? This is what that the prophets have been telling literally for decades that uh, if the nation refused to turn back to God and repent of their ways and turn away from their false worship, that God would bring a disciplinary measure which came in the form uh, really in two waves, the, the Assyrians in the northern kingdom and then later on the Babylonians in the southern kingdom. So um, it's a very it's a very sobering uh, reality and 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 tell me if this is way off base. I, I was talking to some friends last week and we were talking about how people interpret the Bible and you can pretty much interpret the Bible however you want to interpret it, right? I mean you can you can make the Bible say whatever you want to say. And, and one of the things that we believe in our church and we try to really um, demonstrate and teach is that we take the Bible in its normal, plain, ordinary sense. And that doesn't mean there's not symbolic language and things like that, but we just take it in its, its normal, ordinary way. And, and, and can I just tell you that what we've been reading for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter in um, the, the history leading up to this, um, do you understand? God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Uh, God brought a response to the plain, normal sense of what he's been saying to his people for decades. And it just reminded me that, that Scripture is not some, you don't need some magic decoder ring. It's not some you know weird thing you're supposed to read in stuff. and it, it, You take it in its normal plain sense, and I think the way God responds to his own words is a good illustration of that. And, and sadly, that meant that uh, the nation of Judah went into captivity and saw their city destroyed uh, because God did what, exactly what he said he was going to do in light of their sins. So what else? What, what else do you remember? What else have you learned so far? Anything else? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. And uh, so that, that's a good segue, Katie, to chapter three, where we're kind of we find ourselves today that the first two chapters are really about what's going on and the sorrow and grief and pain and, and lamenting of Jeremiah as he represents the people. And then in chapter three, verse one, there's a change in the tone and in the language where Jeremiah is really talking about personally how he's processing all of this. And as you rightly said, Katie, in the first 18 verses there, we see uh, Jeremiah in the midst of his grief and sorrow, he begins to lose sight of who God is and what God's actually doing. And uh, he starts to interpret God in light of the pain and turmoil. We all, we all know what that's like, right? Can we just say that we're not whipping up on our, our friend Jeremiah here? We've all done what Jeremiah has done. We have let circumstances and emotion and feeling and pain and, and sorrow, we have let those things tempt us to believe God to be something that he's not. And, and sometimes with uh, very dramatic and horrible conclusions. And uh, so I think what Jeremiah illustrates for here is helpful. For us. Jeremiah is honest enough to tell us about it. And uh, some of us would never want to voice some of the thoughts that we've had about our God or toward our God. But Jeremiah not only tells us about it, but God saw fit to inscripturate it right here in our Bible for all of history. And, uh, and I think that's helpful because uh, the Bible often voices things that we're too afraid to voice, but we need to talk about. And uh, so that's what we've seen here in these first several verses here. Chapter 3, verse 1, Jeremiah writes, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He's driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. And he goes on to describe the ways that he believes that God is out to get him. God is out to destroy him. God is like an animal lying in wait to devour him. He doesn't listen to his prayer. He's walled him in. He's boxed him in. Uh, he's out for his utter annihilation. And uh, Jeremiah concludes at the end of his own lament for his own heart, really, in verse 17, he says, My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. I mentioned this before, that if, if you talk to people that, that might be considered clinically depressed or would consider themselves depressed, they talk like this. Uh, they talk like God is against them. They talk like there's no hope. And, and they will say things like, I can't remember what it's like to be happy. And uh, this, is a, this is a good place to take people that are struggling with feelings like that because it reminds them that the God of the Bible and the message of Scripture has something to say that it's helpful to them. And this is one way the Bible connects with that. So our section, verses 19 and following, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. And we talked about the, the spiritual discipline of remembering things you already know. I can't tell you how important this is. The Bible is filled with admonition for us to remember things we already know. Um, sometimes we think that growing in our faith means we're just always learning new things. And that's true. We, we, we're not going to exhaust the wisdom and knowledge of God that is comprehensive in the work of Jesus and revealed in the Bible. We're not going to exhaust that. But we are very forgetful people. Have you noticed this? 
We are very forgetful. And not forgetful like, oh, I didn't know that. But it's a, it's a situational forgetfulness. If I said, um, define the Trinity, go, you know, you'd be, you'd rattle that off. Give me some verses, you'd rattle that off. But, but, but here, that's not what the Bible's really getting at when it's talking about remembering. Remembering is not like, uh, you know, I, I, I got the double jeopardy category for Bible knowledge. Um, the remembering is about applying the promises and character of God in a very difficult circumstance. And there's something about the way our fallen emotions work that it tends to create a, a practical atheistic outlook in the midst of that struggle. Have you ever felt like that? You're, you're in the middle of something, uh, you know, grief or anxiety or fear or heartache or, and, it, and it's like God's not there. Like He's not in your mind. And uh, talk to me. Is this true? Is it, you feel like that sometimes? Isn't that strange why that, why that happens? And, and I think, we don't know why it happens, but it, it's not important why it happens. What's important is that we practice the remedy. And the remedy is to actively remember God's character, His promises, His nature, His word in that moment. And, and it's going to feel somewhat unnatural. Uh, and maybe you've had this moment. You, you have to fight to believe what the Bible says is true. When your emotions are saying, No! That's not true! Um, it's a fight. It, it, it's, a, it's a fight of faith to believe what God says and not what you feel to be true. So that's what this is getting at when Jeremiah says here, this I recall to mind and therefore I have hope. What he's saying is that hope and clarity and encouragement and peace are the result or the outcome of remembering and claiming and believing and acting on the truths and promises of God as found in His Word. But you will find, as I found too, it's in the moment of strongest emotion that you have to fight uh, with, with great valor in that. Um, because that's where the battle is. And just a footnote on that. <clears throat> the Bible consistently tells us that spiritual warfare is not a battle to, you know, cast out demons or pray circles around your friend's house and, you know, not like that. Spiritual warfare happens in your mind. The battleground of spiritual War is in your mind. It always has been from Genesis 3 on. It's always about are you going to believe what God says and act on what He says or are you going to believe something else? And um, the front line of spiritual battle is between our two ears, isn't it? Okay, so let's go back to the text. Uh, kind of pick up where we left off last time. We did some review. We talked about that. Okay. So now, uh, how is he interpreting? We saw that. Okay, so how does God rescue us in spiritual depression? That's where we're at in verses 19 and following. We saw a couple of these last time. The first one we saw is actively remember God's never-changing character. Verses 21 and following. He says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
And we see here, we saw last time three different attributes. I don't think Jeremiah intends to be exhaustive here, but just illustrative, meaning he's giving us some samples. The three attributes that we remember and recall to mind, we see there his loving kindness. We talked about that, his loyal love, his reliable trustworthiness. And he says there it never ceases, his compassions. That's his disposition to to show care, to, to pity us. And he says that never fails. And then his faithfulness, right? His trustworthiness, his reliability is new every morning. And that faithfulness is great. It's awesome. Okay? So this reminds us that in the midst of hard emotion and difficult circumstances where our emotions are prone to lie to us about God, that hope is not based on an improvement in circumstances, but on the recollection of and believing and acting and claiming these attributes of God and promises of God. That, you know, that's a great way to help a friend. Um, not, not that we don't pray for the cancer to be healed, or not that we don't pray uh, for comfort in the midst of loss, and we're certainly we're going to do that. But remember, the Bible says hope is not connected to improved circumstances. Hope is connected to a remembrance of who God is. And so pray like that. Encourage your friend like that. Uh, remind them. Don't, don't be afraid. Sometimes we do this, right? We're like, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell Michael in Michael's grief here. Um, I'm not going to tell him that God is trustworthy and faithful. Because Michael's my friend, and I know he knows that. He's known that his whole life. Don't be afraid in the midst of grief, to remind your friend of things he already knows. Don't be afraid to remind your friend of things she already knows. That's what, you think Jeremiah is telling us stuff? I mean, he's got a whole book that tells us this, right? So it's the, it's the fact that he's remembering it and acting on it in the moment when he's tempted to believe otherwise. That's the secret, okay? So remember God's never-changing character. We saw a second encouragement. How does God meet us and rescue us in the midst of a, a spiritual depression? Verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is, here's the word, your faithfulness. And what does that indicate as a change in the chapter? Do you remember? Yes. Yes, he's talking to God instead of talking about him, right? You'll see this all over the Psalms. You'll see it in the prophets. Uh, Really amazing things happen spiritually when we stop talking about God and start talking to him. And Mr. Jeremiah illustrates that for us here. He's talking to God. Um, I was thinking about this too. Sometimes even in human relationships... When you spend all your time talking about the other person that you're struggling with, things usually get worse. The Bible says, go talk to them and work it out. And uh, so when we feel like uh, God is turned away from us and whatnot, we don't want to run away from him. And that, that's a, a good reminder too. Often when you're struggling like this, God's the last person you're going to feel like talking to. In fact, in light of the picture that Jeremiah paints here, um, it's like, why would I want to talk to the God that's out to get me? So remember the order. He remembers the character of God. That helps him put his mind back in a right frame of mind. And that leads him then what? To pursue God and to go to him. So again, as you're helping your friend and your friend is struggling with thoughts like this, uh, yes, we want to encourage her to turn to God, but we want to we want to supplement that with reminders of who He is 
And that just because it feels like she's abandoned or it feels like God doesn't care, it feels like God's out to get her, that that's not true. That's not true. So uh, this is important. And, uh, and it reminds us too, guys, you, don't, you know this, we live in a very, very spiritually ignorant culture. People have all sorts of ideas about God. And so, uh, again, don't, don't feel bad to tell them things you think they already know and sometimes you might be surprised that what you think they might know may not be as much as you think. So tell them who God is. Tell them what God is like. Encourage them with who He is. And then encourage them to reach out to Him in prayer. Third one, this is where we left off last time. Claim God Himself as your most prized possession. We talked about the portion, right? In verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. Uh, of course, that portion looks back to the time when uh, the Israelites were dividing up the land and the Levites were told you don't get a piece of the land because God himself is going to be your portion. And uh, what that means is that um, uh, that that sort of became a, a metaphor. It became a way of thinking about God as our highest good, as our most prized possession. And uh, it's interesting, if you go back and you... Um, and we won't do this right now, but go back through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, throughout his ministry and his book, is striving to help the people of God understand that God is their highest good and that they can trust Him. And that, that uh, is highlighted there in verse chapter 23 of the book of Jeremiah, the righteous branch, the Messiah who will come. And chapter 31, the new covenant where God brings forgiveness and restoration. Um, So, those are good reminders there, okay? All right, let's pick it up kind of where we left off. We're looking at how God is intervening in our text here, and how does He help us in the midst of spiritual depression? Here's number four. Seek God and wait for Him with a quiet heart. Seek God and wait for Him with a quiet heart. Look at verse 25. It says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. It's interesting here. Do you notice in this section how many times the word good is used? Did you, did you get that? Um, in fact, it's interesting, uh, each verse starts out with the word good, and, and that is by intent. You say, why is that? When we are struggling with discouragement or depression or despair or grief or lament or heartache, expect that how we are defining what is good might need some adjustment. How we define good is crucial. And if we look back at the text here, what Jeremiah says is relief and hope and encouragement in the midst of depression is found in remembering the character of God. We talked about that. That God's my portion. We talked about that. To turn to Him, not just talk about Him. We talked about that. But to remember what is actually good. Remember what is good. Look, look, look back here and, and just follow me. What does He say here is good? He says, first of all, it is good for us to wait. Now be honest. 
be honest. How many of you love to wait? You know, you pull up at the HEB drive-through pharmacy, and there's cars all the way out to the road, and you're like, "Oh, terrific! I get to wait." You know, your phone dings, and that Amazon package that was due that day, it says, "We're sorry, a delay has happened." We have no idea where your package is. We have no idea when it's going to come, but we thank you for being an Amazon customer. And you go, oh, this is going to be a terrific day. I, I not only get to wait one more day, I have no idea when my package is coming. I just get to wait indefinitely. You don't do that, do you? And I don't either. Which is why we need this verse. None of us says it's good to wait. And Jeremiah says, um, actually, waiting is spiritually beneficial. Okay, look back at the text. He says, it's good, the Lord, it says, uh, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, and we go, what are you talking about? God says, I'm good to people that wait. And it is good for you and me to wait. It is good to see, it says here, to, to wait silently. You say, what's that mean? When you don't know what's going to happen. When God doesn't say, just stand by for a minute. I'm going to do this, and then this other thing, and then I'm going to do this, and, and then and I'll get back to you. He doesn't, you know, when he says, "Just wait." And that's all the instruction. And what we have to go on is simply trusting that God knows what he's doing in regard to the timing. You ever had that you're like, I've got to make this decision, like tomorrow, please give me more information. And God doesn't give you more information. What do you do? You trust Him. You wait on His timing. And you believe that God knows best, that He cares for you, that He knows exactly what He's doing, and what might seem reckless or ill-timed or... or um, Way too little information is the perfect wisdom and plan of God. So we have to learn to like waiting. And again, and this is not saying anything about the, the you know the HEB line. We, we can talk that's another sermon for another day. The waiting that Jeremiah wants us to think about here is that time when it hurts. When there's pain, when there's loss, when there's grief, when there's sorrow, when there's uncertainty. And all you can do is trust Him and wait on His timing. God does some of His best work when we wait. Um, why is that? Um, Again, I'm not, I'm not thrilled when the Bible says wait, wait, wait. Um, think about it. And, and you understand, waiting in the Bible is not 
okay, and I'm just you know sitting around. Wait, waiting in the Bible means an active trust as you pursue a quiet heart for God to work. It's an active trust. It's a it's a recollection of His character. It, it's a it's a quieting of your soul. Why you wait for God's timing? You say, why is that so important? Let me let me just. Why do you think God is so into waiting? Just what do you think? Yeah, it teaches you to trust Him. Yeah, Grant. It's evidence of faith. Yeah, proves that we're not in control. All things that God wants us to do, right? If he said, I want you to trust me and then do these six things, we'd be like, right? But if he says, I want you to trust me, that's harder, isn't it? That's a lot harder. We are much better at being doers than trusters. And that's the point. And again, you know, when the Bible says wait, it doesn't mean don't do all the other things the Bible tells you to do, right? We, we ought to pray, we ought to serve, we ought to be in the Word. Okay, so the Bible's not saying waiting means don't do anything else. But we understand the, the, the wisdom of waiting is that it forces what God is looking for the most, which is, will you trust me? You're not in control. <laughs> trust that I am. Um, waiting doesn't mean we do nothing. We seek God. We quiet our hearts. Waiting might mean we have to accept the painful circumstances that we're in. You know, the, the, the opposite of waiting is anxiety. The opposite of waiting is worry. The opposite of waiting is a turbulent soul. See, how do you know if you're waiting? You have a trusting, quiet, optimistic, peaceful heart. That's how you know. So that's hard, guys. It's, it's, it's no easier for me than it is for you, but we're seeking God and waiting for Him with a quiet heart. And again, if you put all your... If we put all our emphasis in circumstances improving, as as much as we would like that to happen, uh, that doesn't direct our soul in the right direction. But if we seek God and wait for Him with a quiet heart, um, that is that is a rescue. And, and you know, people that I know that have sort of successfully come out of their depression, uh, those are people that have learned to yield to God. Rather than get back control in the circumstances, it's to say, I trust my Heavenly Father, and I know He knows what He's doing. Let's look at another one. And, and, and remember, don't, don't forget the takeaway. Um, expect, expect that you and I are defining good the wrong way. Okay? Let God define what is good. In fact, that's, that's a good little exercise before we move on to the next point. Next time you're in a struggle, ask yourself this question. How am I defining good? What am I believing is good? And then go to your Bible and say, how does God want to reframe 
my understanding of good. Okay. We, we expect that we, we're going to need that adjustment. Number five, trust that God will honor His Word even in hopeless circumstances. Trust that God will honor His Word even in hopeless circumstances. Uh, let's look at this next point here. Uh, verse 31. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if He causes grief, then He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindness. These verses, guys, remind us that God is always faithful to His Word even when it doesn't seem like it. God has promised that people, God has promised, in context, God has promised His people that after that discipline and judgment, God would again show them compassion. And, and that's, that kind of pushes us back to th- this point that He's reiterating over and over and over again. He's saying it five different ways. Will you trust me? Does it look like God's accomplishing what He's going to accomplish out there? No, it doesn't. Am I going to believe what God says or am I going to let that overwhelm me? And we can apply that today, can't we? You can say, look out at the world. Are we sure God's in control and knows what He's doing? You might look at that in your own family and say, are we sure God knows what He's doing and He's really in control? You might might have a moment where you deal with the turmoil of your own heart and say, is God really in control of this thing? Is it, is, has, he, has He left the scene? Um, which is why we need those first couple of verses there in, in, back in 19 and 20, right? It's God's character that we focus on. And that character reminds us that God is faithful to do what He says He's going to do. It says here, He will again show compassion. He will not reject forever. And we know that because of the covenant, right? God's not going to abandon His people. He's, he's going to bring uh, that line all the way to the Messiah, which means He's not going to totally abandon His people. And we're thankful for that because we need a Messiah. But it reminds us that God is true to His Word, faithful and, and uh, full of loving kindness. There's that loyal, faithful love language again there. Um, in fact, you know this, this section reminds us as we look at it here, um, maybe a, a definition of faith. That, I mean, you know this, but faith is what? Faith is trusting God's word and character instead of our feelings and circumstances. There's faith. Trusting God, his word, his character, instead of our feelings and circumstances. The text says, The Lord will not reject forever if he causes grief then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. You think about that in context of these people that are watching their temple burned down, their little ones carried off to Babylon, people uh, destroyed in the street, and, and to remember that, um, that that grief that was designed by God on purpose because of the discipline needed because of their sin, that that was not to be interpreted as utter, utter rejection. And we have to be careful because, you know, we don't know when, when bad things happen and stuff like that. It's like, is God disciplining us or not? It's always good when bad things happen to ask, you know, is there something I need to repent of? But we don't want to believe every bad thing that happens is God's unique uh, discipline over us. But I'll tell you this. When hard things do happen, 
we do start to ask questions like this. What is God's disposition toward me? What does he think about me? Why is he doing this? Does he care? Is he paying attention? Maybe it's not that he doesn't care. Maybe it's that he's off doing more important things and my life is spinning out of control. So what this is saying is though God sometimes causes grief for his own purposes, he will again have compassion, won't he? According to his abundant loving kindness. And then uh, look at this last point here. Think of God as one who does not afflict from the heart. Think of God as one who does not afflict from the heart. Verse 33. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. What is that? Kind of a weird thing. Um, the Lord will not reject forever, though He causes grief. Then He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindness. For He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Uh, literally, the Hebrew says he, he doesn't afflict from His heart. It's like, what does that mean? Um, I, would, I would bet that any parent in the room here knows exactly what this means. We know what this means, don't we? Little Johnny, little Susie clearly broke your rule and is now guilty and thus you must discipline, you must train, uh, you must inflict pain as a means of training. Well, what's, that, what's that like as a parent? Talk to me, parents. What's that like? It's not a joy, is it? When we're in the right frame of mind, that's, it's, not the, it's not a joy. What is it? It's grievous. It's hard. This is this, this child that you, you love dearly. And you're going to intentionally inflict calculated, tempered pain so that it accomplishes a very important goal. Uh, some of us said to our kids, what? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And every child looks up at mom and dad in unbelief. No, it's not. Right? You're not the one getting the spanking. And and you know what? Um, Some of you grew up in our church. So John's here and and some others here. Talk to me. Is that true as a parent? Absolutely. Absolutely. See? And some of you that are younger that aren't parents yet, you'll see this one day. What your mom and dad said in saying that is right on. It really does hurt the parent more than it hurts the child. Because why? Because you know that you're the one in control to inflict that pain. And you love that child. And and the hardest thing in the world as a parent is what? To see your child hurting. To see your child in pain. And to think that most, most of parenting is what? I'm trying to rescue, protect from pain. And then there's that one moment when the Scripture says, what? If, if you love your children, what are you going to do? You're going to discipline them diligently. 
And, and Hebrews picks up on that, right? And, and says, that's what the heavenly father does, right? Or earthly fathers do the same thing. It's an indication, actually, that you're a beloved child, that your father or mother disciplines you. Why? Because that's, that discipline is for a purpose. It's, it's for training. Hebrews says, so that we can share in the holiness of God. But no parent, including our heavenly father, afflicts and inflicts pain from the heart. It's a, it's a reluctant infliction, isn't it? It's a, it's a half-hearted spanking because that pain grieves you even though you know it produces something good. You say, why are we talking about this? Jeremiah wants us to know that the heart of God is no different. And, and certainly there's a difference between the heavenly father and earthly fathers. We understand that. But the analogy is there. Um, when God brings in hard things to your life and to my life, when, when you're tempted like that little child being held down and the rod is being applied in the moment of disobedience and that child is crying and screaming and telling you not to do it and it hurts and it breaks your heart. We know that our Heavenly Father has something of the same disposition when He is inflicting grief and pain and discipline in our lives and in the lives of people that we love. Uh, Hebrews is important, right? Um, no discipline in the moment. Uh, all, it says all discipline in the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, right? Yet those who have been trained by it afterward, what? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, so let's remember that God doesn't inflict this pain. He doesn't afflict His children uh, willingly, as it says here. Um, he doesn't afflict from the heart. Um, we know that God allows suffering and pain and death and difficulties. We know that God disciplines His people even severely for their good. But we need to remember in the moment of pain, where, where's God's heart, right? Uh, he's not a Stalin or an Adolf Hitler. He's not like a parent venting anger in, in a physical abuse situation. He doesn't afflict, the Bible says, from the heart or grief. He does it out of love. He does it out of a desire that we share in His holiness. Uh, he does it um, so that He can encourage. You know, but what does every parent do? As soon as that discipline moment is over and the child is crying, what does every parent do? Scoops that child up, hugs him, loves on him, kisses him, kisses her, assures him of, of that love and care, right? And that's what he says here, right? Though he causes grief, he will again have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. All right. Well, let's uh, put a comment in our notes here. We'll come back and we'll pick it up uh, next time. Uh, Father, we are so thankful that in the midst of spiritual discouragement, spiritual depression, when hard things happen, whether it's uh, something like what the Israelites are going through here or just grief and sorrow in our own hearts and our own families, we thank you uh, that we can turn to you, remember your character, that we can let you remind us what's really good. 
um, that we know what your heart is even in bringing hard things and that we can trust you as we do the hardest thing in the world and that is to wait on you. Father, I know some of us right now are waiting and we pray, Lord, that that waiting would be a time of fellowship, a time of encouragement, a time where your word strengthens us and that we trust you that to depend and lean wholly on you when we are completely out of control is the best place in the world for us to be. And Father, will you retool our hearts to see it like that, that that is good. And as we pray for others and walk alongside others that are going through hard things, would we take what we've learned today and pray these things for them and minister these things to them and and ask that uh, you would be honored in uh, realizing the benefits that you're bringing in the midst of hard things. Father, thank you that you haven't left us, that you are a kind Father, that you don't afflict from your heart, but you afflict as a means that we would share in your holiness so that you can again show us loving kindness and your tender mercies. Lord, thank you for reminding us who you are. In Jesus' name.